Named the Poet Laureate of Medicine by the New York Times, Oliver Sacks explored neurology and psychiatry in the most human of ways. In this week's episode of 92Y Talks, we present a conversation between Sachs and science author Jonathan Weiner on the subject of longevity. It was recorded on February 10th, 2011 in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. I've, I've known Jonathan for about 15 years, but he was already very interested in the question of questions of aging and mortality and longevity then. His interests really go back to the early 1980s uh, when he spent some time at Rockefeller uh, with a scientist there who had spent her lifetime studying a tiny protozoan, a tiny animalcule, and, um, uh, and finding that even this ruled and died after a while. Um, at that time, there was very little science of aging, very little gerontology, though obviously extending the lifespan uh, has been a human preoccupation for uh, certainly for the last 5,000 years and maybe for the last 30,000. The, uh, there have been some very strange things on the way. Uh, in the 1920s, it was considered that grafting monkey testicles uh, could rejuvenate one. And various people, even including Freud, uh, although he didn't talk about it much, um, had, had this done. Um, but it's probably only in the last 20 or 25 years that um, new knowledge and new techniques have, uh, um, have made gerontology a, um, uh, a, a, an accelerating and uh, an influential science. Um, and this takes place at all levels, from organismic levels like um, calorie restriction to all the sorts of things which are going on at the cellular level. Um, uh, and um, uh, Jonathan has a special interest in evolutionary biology, and uh, in the early part of his book, he discusses very importantly different ideas uh, brought up by evolutionists as to whether aging and death are inevitable and natural and necessary, or whether they are accidental and unfortunate and can be greatly changed. Um, I, um, I don't know whether I should mention that on two occasions, I deceived my publishers by saying that I would write a book on aging. Um, I had a contract to write a book on aging in the late 90s, but the book became Uncle Tungsten, uh, which is a book about youth. Um, and there was a similar thing with its, its successor. Um, 
my own specific contact with the subject has been because I work uh, in old age homes and in hospitals where patients have chronic diseases and aging and illness and death loom in such places as well as all sorts of wonderful and resourceful ways of facing these and modifying them. Um, in my biology days, I was fascinated by the, the range of longevity in animals and plants uh, that one could have sea anemones and the little animalcule called hydra, which never seem to have any senescence, and at least in Aquaria, will go on living for centuries. Um, and the short lifespans of some other animals. I was particularly sad that my favorite animals, which are cephalopods, cuttlefish and octopuses and things, which are so intelligent and affectionate and, and creative, um, only live two years. I, um, I only hope that these two years are, are full of experience and, as it were, that they, they live fast. Um, well, I, um, uh, I can't say a great deal, but we will talk about aging and mortality at the cellular level, but also about, as Jonathan does, what philosophers have said and, and writers and artists and this is a, um, all of us are forced to be interested in this, at least all of us, I think, probably over the age of, of 40 or whatever. You can feel yourself immortal and invulnerable at 30, but, uh, but at 40, there are cracks in the edifice and you know that something is happening. Um, okay, I think at this point I'm going to hand over to Jonathan. Oliver, thank you very, very much. Thanks to all of you for coming. And I apologize for the voice in which I greet you. I knew that I was tempting the fates when I wrote a book about curing everything and put the word immortality right on the cover. And this is my comeuppance. Now this, a chance to speak here at the 92nd Street Y with Oliver Sacks, and I lost my voice. So let's take it tonight as a, a little reminder of the limits of science and of medicine and of folk medicine of which I have tried everything in the last few days. Uh, I, I uh, teach at Columbia and uh, I ventured to ask all of my students for their home remedies a few days ago. And uh, they sent me many wonderful remedies. Uh, one of them is is doing some reporting in a botanica and sent me suggestions of herbal remedies from the botanica. Um, my student Ashley sent me this note. Gargle with warm, not hot, just warm water, salt water, eat a tablespoon of honey and slowly sip a cold glass of water with lemon. This is the one thing my German and Chippewa grandmothers agreed upon. <laughs> And uh, 
Um, an actress friend of ours, Rosalind Landor, a British actress who recorded one of my wife's books for Audible and records books for Audible for a living, wrote to suggest that I wrap a hot, wet towel around my neck and gargle with Manischewitz. <laughs> well, we knew it was good for something. So I tried that and my wife said, be careful, this was this afternoon, be careful. You're going to arrive on stage, you're going to be dead drunk, and it'll be like a scene from Awakenings. Oliver will be trying to rouse you. So I really am honored and privileged to be here tonight, and um, I'm, I'm um, very conscious that I'm speaking with uh, a writer who has expanded extraordinarily the possibilities uh, for a literature about science, and in fact really has defined those possibilities for, uh, for those of us writing now. The case histories he writes are beautiful and inimitable, and every one is a lesson in the power of story. He and I have shared a number of panels over these last dozen years or so, and um, I followed Oliver's footsteps in writing a New Yorker story about a strange epidemic of neurodegenerative disease on the island of Guam some years back. And so uh, we've had a number of meals and a number of wonderful conversations. And I can testify that he is famous among writers, among other things, for his extraordinarily kind and generous letters uh, with I think my last four books, I have received a wonderful letter from Oliver. And sometimes, as with this latest book, it was the very first letter I got from a reader. And uh, this latest one, coming at an anxious moment, was so lovely and so gratifying that I framed it, and it's in my office. So I can say there's only one time in our in our um, acquaintance now, that I have ever seen Oliver less than kind. And I want to tell you that story, <laughs> naturally. It was at a big party for writers, and uh, those of you who have been to them know that they can be kind of ghastly in a way. And I was wandering around. This was a big New Yorker party in which I felt entirely anonymous. And I bumped into a face that I knew, and I was so happy to see Oliver. And I greeted him, and he looked at me blankly, and it went right through me. It was as if he didn't recognize me. And I said, Oliver, it's me, it's Jonathan. And then he gave me this long apology, which I felt was so trumped up, he said, you know, I have a peculiar condition called face blindness, and I couldn't recognize you in the crowd. And the whole time he was telling that story, I was thinking, yeah, right, sure, right. And then, in fact, of course, one of the, um, the great themes of his latest uh, and wonderful book, The Mind's Eye, is this phenomenon of prosopagnosia. I hope I'm pronouncing it close to correct. Uh, correctly, and, um, and in fact, Oliver has dealt with that all his life. So, turning to the subject of the 
evening. I, um, I have tried in each of my books, in some ways emulating Oliver's work, to find a strong story in which to approach an important scientific subject and to illuminate the science through wonderful characters. And I think for me as a writer, that is the most natural way forward. I would never want to write a textbook. I have no interest in, except when absolutely necessary, reading a textbook, but I love stories. And to approach science through the characters who carry it out and the characters surrounding them who make a world together for me, this is a way to illuminate not only the work, but also the sense that we are all of a piece, that the scientific enterprise is not somewhere apart from the rest of the human condition, but essential to it. Our curiosity, our, uh, our, our depth of mortal concern in this world, all of that drives us to an interest in science from a very, very early age and continues, whether we define it as scientific or not. So this book, as Oliver said, uh, grows out of a long-standing interest for me. I was, uh, I was fortunate, as a young writer starting out, to interview a wonderful biologist at Rockefeller named R Maria Rudzinska, who was studying the problem of aging. And I've been fascinated by the subject ever since. And it was only what is it now, seven years ago or so, when I met an extraordinary character named Aubrey de Grey that I knew that I had a way to cast the book in the way I wanted as a story. And Aubrey, I imagine we'll talk a little bit about him among many other things, but Aubrey is one of those characters who really defines himself as a character. He is a character. He's six feet tall with a beard down to here. He looks like a youngish Methuselah, and he believes that we will live a thousand years or more. Many of us in this room have a shot at perhaps 10,000 years, and he even murmurs sometimes conspiratorially about a million years. So I told him from the beginning I wasn't writing as a disciple or a co-conspirator, and in fact that we would be in some way foils in the book. And we are. My own sentiments are much more ambivalent than Aubrey's, much more complicated on this subject. And um, I just want to read you something that um, expresses some of that. Uh, Nikki Tanner, whose, whose father, uh, uh, these lectures are endowed in memory of her father, the Newman lectures, came backstage just a moment ago and handed me this beautiful paragraph which he had mentioned to me some time ago when we first met. It's from the Yom Kippur Memorial Service. And this is the paragraph. If some messenger were to come to us with the offer that death should be overthrown, but with the one inseparable condition that birth also should cease, if the existing generation were given the chance to live forever, but on the clear understanding that never again would there be a child or a youth or first love, 
Never again new persons with new hopes, new ideas, new achievements, ourselves for always and never any others. Could the answer be in doubt? With this book, I learned a great deal about longevity, I hope, and immortality, perhaps, but certainly, I think, and most of all, about mortality. Thank you. So which of us should start? Um, <laughs> and how? Um, the, um, there is a, uh, an old Jewish myth that um, uh, uh, at the moment of birth, the angel of death puts a finger and makes this little dimple on one's lip. And with this, uh, one has been omniscient before, but now one does not know where the day of one's death. And so this is the angel of death being merciful. Hmm. It's a beautiful legend. And uh, uh, I know that legend. A rabbi told me that story once, and I thought, isn't that not only does that speak to that look of omniscience on a newborn's face, but it also speaks to the enormous wealth, infinite wealth of experience that we carry with us as living creatures on this planet because of four and a half billion years having come before us, so much wisdom of the genes and so much, um, so much wisdom in our instincts and so much folly in our instincts, but all of that part of our inheritance, which we can barely access thanks to that touch on the lips. Yeah. Um, uh, where, where are we going to start? Um, <laughs> I, um, this is why the writing of a book on this subject takes so long. <laughs> it's an infinite subject. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's actually it's much easier to write than, than to talk. At mm. least I, I find that mm. so. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll warm up. Um, I, um, I, I, I was, in my few words, which um, uh, I said that I thought that one could have the illusion of immortality until one was 40 or so, mm. but um, uh, to be, uh, um, actually, when I was 40, when I was 41, I had a bad accident on a mountain and thought I wouldn't make it. Mm -hmm. um, and, but, but I think things were happening anyhow then, and I'm wondering about your own thoughts on, on mortality. I was very struck when you said that about 40 because uh, I also uh, felt uh, the, those cracks in the pedestal somewhere around that time. Uh, for me, it wasn't an accident on, the, on a mountain. It was uh, uh, a family illness. My mother became very ill, and we were aware of it then for the first time, how serious it was. And uh, she was ill for quite a long time. And I think that that, uh, that created a, a strong shift for me in my 
perception because up until, right up until the day before I turned 40, I really did think of myself as some sort of eternal youth. In fact, um, uh, I know you have a wonderful head for numbers, I don't. And I had this almost, almost, almost uh, hope that the math was wrong and I subtracted, uh, what was it, 1993, I wrote 1993, under it, 1953, and I did the arithmetic and there was that number 40 and I just couldn't believe it. So I think all of us in my generation, the baby boom generation, um, still, we still carry that label and yet it no longer fits. And uh, it probably was for many of us around the age of 40 that we began to realize that we wouldn't carry that forever. Um, uh, this extraordinary character, um, Aubrey de Vere. I I'm missing out the three or four other names. De Aubrey, David, Nicholas, Jasper, de Grey. De Grey. The, who is so obsessed uh, by um, immortality and, and thoughts. Um, uh, how old is he, or how old was he when he became obsessed? He was very young. He's 10 years younger than I am, which means uh, he is now 47, and uh, that puts him either, he's, he's either the youngest, youngest baby boomer or the oldest of whatever the next <laughs> generation is. And uh, when he was in his 20s, he was a computer scientist at Cambridge and met a biologist named Adelaide Carpenter, 20 years older than himself. They fell in love madly and passionately, and, um, and he fell in love not only with Adelaide, but with biology, and not only with biology, but with the hope that there might be a cure for aging and that his mission might be to find that cure. So since his late 20s, this has consumed his mm -hmm. life. Yeah. And he, by the way, takes a very different position from the one in the Yom Kippur prayer service. Uh, he feels that he and Adelaide have no interest in children particularly. He has never himself had much fondness for children, particularly, and he thinks that a world without children in which we are our own next generation would be a better place. So that's the moment in which I think he loses many of, uh, many of his audiences when he stumps around the world. Uh, did, did Darwin have any thoughts about aging and death? That's a good question. Uh, uh, he, he was reconciled to death. He was very calm in his, uh, in his last days. I know this because uh, uh, my wife, Deborah Heiligman, who's here tonight, wrote a beautiful book about it's a, it's a love story uh, called Charles and Emma, mm -hmm. The Darwin's Leap of Faith. Um, Emma Wedgwood was devout and believed that she and Charles were bound to be separated for eternity because she would go to heaven 
and he was Charles Darwin. <laughs> and uh, she tried to get him to reconsider and read the Bible, and yet they were so close that uh, she even helped to edit and made suggestions in the margins of the origin of species. So um, she records that uh, Charles said, I think in his last words, I have no fear of death. Um, but um, uh, what about his biological views of, of age and death? He did not talk about uh, the evolution of aging, as one might expect, because he, he wrote so prolifically and thought so, uh, anticipated so miraculously so much of evolutionary theory since he, he laid down a thousand paths that are still being explored. But he doesn't seem to have thought about this. And again, I really do apologize for the voice. But um, he left it to one of his first disciples, uh, Weissman, to develop a theory of the evolution of aging, why aging might have evolved. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a difficult question, as it turns out. Weissman thought he had an answer, and it's a rather obvious answer. In fact, it's probably the answer that some of you have just arrived at if you're, if you're thinking about this question for the first time. The answer is the one um, that's pointed toward in, in, the, in that passage of prayer that I read. If we didn't get old and, and, and make way for the next generation, then what? what would, how would the next generation come up in the world? The species would gradually get older and frailer and more and more weak, and that would be terrible for the survival of the fittest. So for that reason, we have to pass away. That was his argument. But as Sir Peter Medawar pointed out many decades later, that's a circular argument. It presumes what it seeks to explain. The question is, why do we get more frail as time passes? Why is increasing age necessarily associated with increasing frailty? Uh, it doesn't have to be that way. As you mentioned, the hydra in the aquarium tank is able to live very happily without what we would call aging. It gets older, but it stays as young and vigorous as ever, as long as somebody keeps water in the tank or the puddle. So how come we don't do that? Why is aging so common, so nearly universal in the natural world? And Medawar proposed a very interesting argument, uh, as you know, in, uh, uh, in, answer, in, in refuting Weissman and going beyond Weissman, which Darwin really could have thought of, but, um, but doesn't seem to have put his mind to. And that's that we're already, all of us in this room, we've already lived such fortunate lives. We've already gone so far beyond the age that we would probably have reached if we had been born, say, 50,000 years ago, or 100 or a million years ago. Our ancestors rarely got to live 
well into adulthood, what we would now call young adulthood. So there was no reason for evolution to build us to last this long. We're already way past the warranty point. And so we're on our own. Evolution never really had any need to build us to last longer than this because we would have, we would have run out of food or in a famine or we would have died in a drought or uh, the lions would have gotten us or the jackals would have gotten us. We would not have made it this far. So according to Medawar, it behooves most living things to build fast, grow up fast, and, um, and then once you've passed the age when um, most, most of the individuals of your species have passed on their genes, well, the warranty is over and anything after that is gravy. Um, that would seem a, a dark vision, but it's, uh, it also opens the possibility that what nature can't affect, we can. And I'm wondering to what extent the, the Medawa point of view has allowed some of the, uh, the whole present research to, to bloom. I, I think uh, it's, it's very true that Medawar's argument, which is currently at least well accepted, gives hope to a number of gerontologists who can say, at least, at least in philosophical terms, it's not natural. It's not, it's not uh, natural in the sense that evolution did not, uh, so to speak, design us to age. Evolution designed us to, um, to reach our prime, and then evolution looked the other way. So if we want to do something about, say, uh, weakening vision, um, that's up to us. We're not going against nature. We're merely supplementing what, uh, what we have been given. And perhaps we can find ways to cure or at least to ease many of the troubles that we now take for granted in the latter half of life. And, uh, and research has become uh, a, a huge thing now in, in, in gerontology. It has. The, the field, since the early 1980s, uh, when I met Maria Rudzinska, who was then in her 80s herself and clearly losing the race against uh, uh, the, uh, uh, aging was moving faster than her research, let's put it that way. Uh, it was a poignant, poignant meeting I had with Maria Rudzinska. Uh, she was almost alone in her field, and soon after that, people began getting very excited about the possibilities of a treatment for aging. You and I have talked about uh, a wonderful mutual friend, Seymour Benzer, a great molecular biologist. Friend wrote of a beautiful, beautiful book about him. Oh, thank you, Oliver. Uh, again, you use him as the as the central character for. Yeah. Well, Seymour, uh, I met Seymour when he was in his late seventies, and he had become fascinated by this problem of aging, 
which does become more and more interesting, doesn't it, as one gets a little bit older. And he, uh, he decided that he was going to try to approach the problem using fruit flies. He'd been working with fruit flies and the breeding of fruit flies for many, many years. And he thought, why don't I see if I can find a Methuselah among the flies? A fly that will live so much longer in the, in, in the, um, in the flask that it could be called a Methuselah. Another California biologist, Cynthia Kenyon, a lot of this work started in California, oddly enough. Uh, Cynthia Kenyon had already bred Methuselah worms, uh, C. elegans, and Seymour succeeded in making a Methuselah fly. He named the mutant Methuselah, in fact, uh, around the time he turned 80, and continued to do wonderful research that helped to encourage many people of many different ages in biology to take the subject seriously. And he had this wonderfully conspiratorial way. It occurs to me this is the one moment in which this voice is an advantage. I mean, if I were imitating Marlon Brando or Seymour, Seymour Benzer, I could, this, this is about right. He would say, you know, he was from Brooklyn, you know, I think we could really do something about this. I think we really might be able to do something. And it was, it was sort of wonderful. It was like he was saying we were prisoners in, in, in adjourning, adjourning, adjoining cells. And he was saying, I think I know a way out. You know, I think I can find a way out. And, um, and more and more biologists now are excited about the study of uh, ways to slow aging or uh, even at the fringes, because Aubrey, my main character, is, is at the extreme, to uh, halt it or reverse it. I wonder, uh, you say that when you were uh, 41, you had that bad accident, which um, you describe wonderfully in your book, A Leg to Stand On. Um, but I don't have the impression that uh, you have felt particularly uh, the advance of age. Uh, uh, I think uh, you've always seemed remarkably youthful. So um, if you don't mind my asking, um, what's that been like for you? Uh, uh, I, I, um, uh, I didn't feel particularly old or think much about age until about five years ago when I developed a cancer in one eye. Um, although I was told that the cancer was imminently treatable, um, uh, I think once one has a cancer, one never quite knows what's going to happen. There are still, and so, um, uh, and although in some sense we all have a death sentence, this, uh, this was special. Um, then, uh, in the last 15 months, uh, I had two fairly major surgeries, one on top of the other, and um, I, I was confined to bed for a while. I lost 40 pounds, and I felt 10 years older, mm. and I was told that I looked 10 years older. Um, <laughs> that was but nice. um, um, fortunately, I think that has, uh, that has reversed, but I, I feel um, 
vulnerability and the, um, uh, as, as never before, um, and uh, limited time, although this makes me want to do more <laughs> and, um, and, and to live each day to the, to, to the full. <laughs> um, a, um, a friend and colleague of mine uh, was uh, thought to have a very malignant cancer of the thyroid when he was 19. Um, and uh, he was given a year to live, but he, he worked as hard as he could in that year and enjoyed it as hard as he could, and then he didn't die at the end of that year. So maybe he had another year. Anyhow, he is, um, he is now 73. <laughs> um, he's had a wonderful career as a neurosurgeon, um, and um, is an almost manically active because he, he still feels, you know, that, that death is, is just around the corner, therefore he does as much as possible. <laughs> so maybe that's, that's one of the benefits. But I, um, I, I, don't, I don't think I like the feeling of mortality very much, but it's, um, uh, and, and yet it's interesting. <laughs> yes. I wonder, uh, since we all, as you say, uh, are aware, at least partially aware, that uh, our time has a limit, uh, and that drives us to do what we do, I wonder if that were removed, if Aubrey had his way, and we did have 10,000 years ahead of us, if we would all turn into just a sea of procrastinators, if we, if, if we aren't already. And uh, what do you think? Do we need uh, that time limit? Um, uh, curiously, uh, Darwin once said that he thought a geologist should live to 10,000, <laughs> so he could, he could live on the same time scale as some of the changes. Um, <laughs> now, um, I mean, I, I, um, I think, say, that someone who is overwhelmingly and irresistibly creative like Darwin um, would, um, uh, would not be deterred by immortality. <laughs> you know, he, he, he would keep, keep going for a thousand years. But I, I think with most of us, the, the shape of life and the meaning of life is, is determined by its ending. Uh, and by the fact that it's not infinite. Um, and uh, I, um, but I, who knows? No, that's not true. I was thinking it's, it's, at some point we, we needed to have audience participation. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I, maybe we are getting too moribund. We have to, uh, we yeah. have to pace ourselves in terms of the right. conversation. Um, the, um, um, although you may write about grim subjects, and I may do, writing itself is a joy when it goes, isn't it? It certainly is. It certainly is. And uh, uh, it's, it's a time-stopping occupation. And uh, it's also uh, so much... Uh, you, you feel... I, I, um, I read somewhere that the snail is one of the few creatures to preserve a complete record of its growth. We erase ours, so much of ours. 
but a writer has that complete record and how wonderful that is for us. Uh, so that uh, we have a sense, a tangible sense of where we've come from, where we've been, where we're going. And, uh, and we can turn to uh, what matters most at each particular moment, as Seymour did in looking for his Methuselah mutant. I wonder if this would be a good time for us to turn to questions from yeah. the audience. Um, I, I think Since I they're uh, agitating to yes, ask okay. already. Um, I, I'm, I'm just going to say one brief thing. Um, after my two surgeries, I was, um, well, both before and after them, I was in intense pain, but I found writing was better than morphine. <laughs> it's up to you people. <laughs> the ushers are collecting questions right now, so if you have a question or if you didn't get a card, raise your hand, you'll get a card. Um, Write your question down, they'll be collected and brought on stage. And will the person who cried, no, it's not true, tell us why she, she cried that? Yes. Okay, um, to start with. Thank you. Do you have a question? I, I know you. I've, may I, I know, I know, I have to say, we met. I believe we met. Were you married to the artist Arakawa? Yes. Yes. I interviewed you back at the same time I interviewed Maria Rudzinska down in the village. Uh, the Mechanism of Meaning. Yes. It's nice to see you again. believe in reincarnation, karma, or, or as in Buddhism, Hinduism, that our ailments with pain and suffering are connected to our past lives? No. I find such thoughts unintelligible as well as repugnant. <laughs> Uh, is the fear and obsession with old age a recent phenomena, especially in Western culture? Uh, no, it's, uh, it's an eternal phenomenon. And uh, 
our oldest, oldest works of art have addressed the very same concerns that we're talking about tonight. Uh, in fact, it seems almost as if as soon as people invent writing in any culture, the story that they, the first ambitious story that they sit down to write is the story of a quest to conquer death. And you see that uh, in, in Egypt, uh, uh, in um, papyri and in mythology. You see it across that pond in, uh, uh, in, in Babylon, uh, what is now Iraq. Uh, the story of Gilgamesh, it's a story of uh, apparently historically uh, uh, a figure who did live in history, uh, a great ruler who walked away from it all to try to find a cure for, for aging and death in the desert. Uh, Adam and Eve, they were overreaching. It was, it was the, the possibility that they would eat of the uh, tree of life and live forever that, uh, evicted, that caused them to be evicted from the garden. So um, no, right from the start, we've, and, and from before the start, no, before we were writing, we've, we've had these concerns, we've thought them through, we've weighed the pros and cons of escaping death and living forever. Our very ambivalence has, has a long, long history, and, uh, uh, and none of this is original with us. What's original with us is those Methuselah mutants, and, um, and the study of the metabolism of, um, of mice, say, that are eating very, very little, just enough to get along, and, uh, uh, and the worms and the flies, a huge range of animals seem to benefit uh, and have longer, healthier lives through calorie restriction. So there are angles of research now that seem promising, and uh, I don't think any generation before ours was ever so tantalized by what it knew uh, in, in this field, in the study of aging. That's not to say we're about to grab the apple, but we are, um, we are farther along than all those generations before. Are there any new medicines or interventions to arrest Alzheimer's or Parkinson's? Does deep brain stimulation actually work? However, this should be for you. Um. Uh, the medicines which, which can help the symptoms, but I don't know that they alter the process, um, although there is hope for so-called neuroprotective drugs. Um, deep brain stimulation can be very useful in, in Parkinson's, and, um, uh, but uh, one of the, the horrors uh, of, uh, of increasing age is Alzheimer's. Um, at the age of 85, uh, uh, one has a one in two chance of getting Alzheimer's. Um, the, um, uh, Jonathan, uh, you've written beautifully about the um, uh, the garbage theory of aging uh, that cells accumulate uh, all sorts of, of uh, metabolic 
products or which may be toxic and which they can't get rid of. Uh, in Alzheimer's, this takes the form of, of plaques and, uh, um, and, and other problems in, in the brain. Um, but there, there is some hope that, that something radical can be done. And certainly as I approach 80 myself, I keep a keen eye on this research. I, I don't mean, um, by the way, to uh, suggest that I'm uh, 300 degrees skeptical of uh, Aubrey de Grey's arguments. And he has made a very interesting argument that opens a new avenue for research in this very area. Uh, it's sort of a ghoulish argument, but it's interesting. This is it. If, if garbage builds up in various cells, uh, including plaques, uh, beta amyloid, um, strongly associated with Alzheimer's and many other neurodegenerative diseases. And we have evolved no way to attack and dissolve and digest that. Is there any creature on the planet, Aubrey asked himself, that might have found a way to clear that garbage away? And the answer came to him one day in graveyards, in the soil of graveyards, there are bacteria. He lives in Cambridge, England, where there are bacteria that have spent centuries and centuries and centuries specializing in dealing with all sorts of indigestible stuff below the surface. I told you this was ghoulish. So he sent a grad student to dig soil in Midsummer Common, I think it is, one of the old graveyards in Cambridge. They cultured the, the, the bacteria, and they tried to raise different strains on stuff, garbage that builds up in our cells that our bodies don't know how to get rid of. As outlandish as that sounds, and Aubrey is nothing if not an out-of-the-box thinker, that has been taken up by a number of bioengineering experts, including a big team in Arizona, and they're exploring the possibilities of finding a new drug that way, prospecting in those, in those graveyard germs. That's pretty grim, isn't it? <laughs> Woody Allen said, I don't want to achieve immortality in my work. I want to achieve it by not dying. How would immortality or longevity affect our work? Would we be appropriately motivated to achieve without the specter of death and the promise of being remembered? Uh, we did talk about that a moment ago, probably after uh, someone wrote that question. The uh, uh, problem of procrastination, I think, that's the problem that that, that, that question gets at. And um, if this isn't too horrible, I want to quote my favorite line from my book, which is about procrastination. It's uh, a problem I know very well. And uh, the line is, procrastination is not one of the seven deadly sins, but those of us who work hard at it do sometimes achieve a near-death experience. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's interesting when one speaks of deadlines. Uh, this is for Dr. Sachs. What are some of your older patients' coping mechanisms when looking at death? Um, among other places, I work in some religious homes with the Little Sisters of the Poor, and um, I, um, there I know many um, uh, people in their 90s and their hundreds who are quite intact intellectually, uh, who are not depressed, but who will say, um, I, uh, they will say, Lord, I'm ready. I've, uh, I've had a good life, um, and uh, give me more if you want, take it away. Um, so this sort of uh, religious acquiescence or resignation is, is one way of doing things. Um, uh, there are, there, are, there are some people, perhaps, who are physiologically gifted and who, are, uh, and who um, uh, in their 90s, are able to behave as if in, the, in their 40s or 50s. Um, uh, certainly, um, libido uh, persists until one is in the grave, uh, for, for better or worse. <laughs> Um, the, um, uh, I think the feeling of, um, uh, of a spacious experience of wide perspectives, uh, of a sense of history, of having seen so much, and also the sense of being, as it were, a grandparent or a great-grandparent, literally or metaphorically, part of a generational cycle is, is I see how important that is with many of my, my patients. They, um, they quite enjoy the, the special status of being uh, venerable. Would you address the role of genetics in aging? Well, it's, uh, sorry, it's an, it's, it does play an important part and it's being explored more and more carefully now, the, the role of genetics in aging. There's an easy way to explore it, or at least it should be easy. Just look at the genes of centenarians and the so-called super centenarians who make it uh, well past 100 in reasonably good shape. What is that uh, in the genes? Are there common answers there? There don't seem to be any common um, prescriptions in uh, uh, styles of life. The answers that uh, centenarians tend to give are, are whimsical at, at best, puckish. Uh, the woman who holds the world's record to date uh, for longevity, Jean Calment of Arles, France, made it to 122. And she used to say her secret was that she had quit smoking. At, uh, at 110. <laughs> um, there, um, there's, some, um, there's some other stories like that. Um, I think in uh, uh, two years ago, there were two contenders. They were both women of 114. Um, uh, one of them in, who lived in Holland 
uh, said that her recipe was herrings every day. Um, but the woman who lived in Tennessee uh, said her recipe was, was minding her own business. <laughs> um, but I, I also have to add a little story from, uh, from my own experience. Um, we uh, admitted uh, a supercentenarian, a woman of 111, uh, who had previously been living alone and independently to the Little Sisters of the Poor because she was becoming blind. Uh, but her blindness was, in fact, due to a treatable condition, cataracts. And um, when, uh, when her cataracts were removed, she was very, very delighted. Uh, and she decided to leave the home. She said she didn't want to be with all these old people. <laughs> <laughs> and she made it for, for another two years. <laughs> How does forgiveness affect the brain and the aging process? Yeah, I think forgiveness is very good for one, provided one is dealing with the forgivable. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, uh, but, but in a situation where forgiveness is called for, I'm, uh, I'm sure it sort of brings down the blood pressure and, and, and you know, all, all the signs of stress, which, which, which vengefulness and anger uh, cause. What is the expectation for the future length of human life on average? Well, <clears throat> we're, um, we're living longer every year. Our life expectancy, that is, increases every year. And it has done that on a straight line for the last 160-something years. So conventional gerontologists, mainstream gerontologists, ex like to extend that straight line onward. We don't know whether that will continue to be true, whether we'll keep gaining uh, uh, time as we have been, but if it's true, then that amounts to an extra five hours for every day we live. It's as if we're all traveling down a road and medicine far in the future is busily extending that road so that it's longer, we have more time ahead. So we get an extra five hours every day, or you could look at it, we get almost a weekend every week which is pretty good. But uh, there, are, there are many different estimates for uh, how, what life expectancy can become. Uh, more conservative gerontologists say that we're already uh, about at the limit, that uh, uh, to have a general life expectancy of 85 or so, that that might be as far as we can get. There are others who hope that we might be able to gain a few extra decades, good decades. And uh, then at the fringes again are, are uh, Aubrey and some others who are uh, uh, trying to, who argue for, uh, for gr vastly longer life extension. Okay, I'd like to thank both of our speakers for a really interesting talk tonight.
Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations on 92yondemand.org.